Hey, it's Russ from Good Riddance, and you are listening to Miserable Failure Podcast. Clobbering time with Sick of It All. I love that song. That song gets me so pumped. I hope everyone's pumped for this episode. It's such a great episode. Let's start at the beginning, though. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Miserable Failure Podcast, brought to you by CRW Canadian Rock Wrestling. That's right. This episode is brought to you by CRW. Be sure to check them out. On today's episode, I talked to Lou Collar of Sick of It All, the singer, the guy behind New York Hardcore. People, are you listening? People, hello. Who's out there listening to this right now? Lou Collar, he is a legend. I am so very excited to share this interview with you because not only is he a legend, but he is so humble, so down to earth. And the chat that we had was, it was just a genuine chat i had questions for him but like i didn't even bother reading any of the questions we just kind of talked it was it was a great talk and i'm excited to share this with you before we get into that i just wanted to say like always i have merch available at crustymedia.ca i got t-shirts and the mugs the coffee mugs seem to be a very popular thing right now we have socks tank tops and all that kind of stuff. And if you don't want Miserable Failure merch, then you can just get Krusty Media merch. And my band, No Big Deal, has a couple of things on there as well. There's some underwear and and (laughs) some other silly things like that. I'm going to play a song by the band, and then we're going to get into the interview. And this particular song, I really like this song. It's It might be my favorite Sick of It All song. It's called Road Less Traveled. I really dig the lyrics about it. I, I vibe to it. I really can connect with it. It gets you headbang, gets you going. I think it's a perfect way to start this interview. Here's Sick of It All, Road Less Traveled. Then we're going to hear from Lou Collar. Oh, 
So how are you doing? I'm all right, man. I'm all right. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. No problem. Surviving, no surviving the nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> are you in Queens or? No, uh, I live in New Jersey now. Oh, you live in New Jersey now. Okay. How's that? Yeah. Oh, it's nice. It's exactly like the area I grew up in Queens, except uh, you got deer instead of just <laughs> squirrels, you know? Dude, last time I was in New York, I was with a band and they played in Brooklyn. And then we, mm-hmm. we drove north. We're going to New Haven. And mm-hmm. it was like three in the morning. And there were so many deer trying to cross the highway. Yeah. I was like scared for my life. We were driving in this big van and there's just running by us. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. I've never seen it's, so many deer. It's crazy. It's like, are they attracted to the headlights? Because that's when they cross. You know, you can just yeah. be driving along <laughs> and they're standing on the side of the road. And when you get close to them, they shoot right in front of you. Have you guys ever gone to an accident? I'm sure no. you've, you've got many stories. Yeah, but not with it. Never hit a deer, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a couple. Not Nothing life-threatening or changing. Uh, I think the worst one was we were in the van driving home from D.C. And it was really late at night. We all fell asleep and we ended up hitting the cement divider. And bouncing oh, across. Thank God there was no cars around us. We hit the, it was like three in the morning. We hit the divider and bounced all the way to the side of the road. This guy pulled over behind us, uh, ex-Marine, and he he got out and he asked if we were all all right. And he called the police and, you know, they came. Well, how was the equipment, more importantly? <laughs> Everything was fine. The, the van just got, the one of the axles got fucked up, which, which sucked because you know how much that shit costs. You know, we yeah. Had to wait for the tow truck and all that crap. You know, we waited on the side of the highway for hours. Yeah. <laughs> When you're starting off as a band, like the biggest purchase you have to make is that van. And a lot of bands make the mistake of buying like that used van that has 400,000 kilometers on it. Like it's only 2000 bucks. This literally happened to my girlfriend's band. And they're like, they're in South Carolina. Next thing you know, the car, the the van's dead and they're screwed. Well, we replaced the whole transmission, which costs more than you pay for the van. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You basically have a new van. Well, why didn't we get a new van? <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. Uh, you know, like you said, you're a young band. You want to. And it's even worse when like an older band and sells you their used van. We made it, you know, through the whole U.S. six times with this. And then you get it in three days into your first run. It blows up. Yeah, it's already been around the country six times. So, yeah, that's why it's probably doing that. I don't really know your age and I, I'm not going to ask your age, but I'm assuming obviously you grew up as a teen in the 80s. Yeah. Is that correct to say? So. Yes. Being a teen in the 80s, living in Queens, what was that like? I live in Toronto, and I've obviously seen documentaries and movies, and it looks like it was like it had been bombed there. It was just like <laughs> buildings were like on fire. And- oh, the Bronx was worse back then, and, and the Lower East Side of New York was just about to change. You know, it was that was where you went when you you left your home and you had no money. You wanted to get a cheap apartment, you go to the Lower East Side of New York. Now you can't get near that place for less than like three thousand a month for like a studio. You know? Oh wow. But back then in Queens, it was great. The thing about Queens is we have the major airport, JFK, and that helps with all the different influx of different types of people. Queens is the first place they settle in because it was cheap. So you got this whole diversity. I'm not saying it was a big melting pot. You know, you had your Irish neighborhood, but it blended into the Chinese, into the Mexican, into whatever. But you all went to school together. We learned so much shit. I think it made you a little more open-minded. Most people. I have a friend, actually. He just moved to L.A. maybe like three weeks ago. And he texted me. He's like, Michael, I can't find a good bagel anywhere. Anywhere in L.A. (laughs) And he's from Queens. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't. Surprisingly, here in Jersey, especially I'm in this town called Fanwood. It's a tiny little town. Never heard of it. We moved here for the location uh, to my wife's work. They have an amazing bagel place here. 
which, which is amazing bagel place and three really good pizza places. So that's great. Yeah. I love pizza. And I, you know what, I've, <laughs> I've been to Chicago, I've been to New York and I've been all over the States and definitely New York pizza. Ah, is, see? Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was our big joke. Every time we played Chicago at the end of the night, I'd be thanking them. Cause they were, they were always great to us. I'd be like, we love you, Chicago. We love you, but your pizza's still second rate. And they boom <laughs> at the end of the set. Yeah. Just the thick crust. No, thanks. When was the first time you went to CBGB's? And what attracted you to CBGB's? When I first actually went into CBGB, the first time I went was like, God, sometime in 84, I went down there, but I was so scared to go in. I was across the street and I saw the crowd, you know, and you're young kids. You're, yeah, I loved hardcore punk and I loved, you know, you know, punk rock. And I've been to see the Dead Kennedys at huger venues, but there was CBGBs and it was like the cool spot. I, I went because we became friends with Armand in high school through like loving bands like Motorhead and Venom and all that. And we were talking about Discharge and the Exploited. And then he said, you know, there's a scene right here in New York. And he was telling me about, I think the show he went to was uh, Flipper and Negative Approach. And I went because I love, he played me Negative Approach at 7-inch. And I went to go see it, but I was too scared to cross the street because <laughs> it just looked insane. There's all these bald guys, these big NA shirts on. And I was just like, what the hell's going on? I think a year later, I ended up going. My first show was uh, Corrosion of Conformity when the Eye for an Eye was the record. Yeah, Eye for yeah. an Eye record. I became pen pals with Woody, the guitar player. They're one of my favorite bands. I'm 40, so I was like a teenager in the 90s. So I grew up with like the 90s Corrosion with pepper and so stuff good. but yeah, yeah but i like great. obviously i fell in love with all everything and i could just imagine woody he seems like such a sweetheart i could just imagine writing to a whole bunch of fans being pen I, pals i don't throw stuff away so it's probably in some box somewhere but we used to write letters and we talk about like hey did you hear this band the chromags he's like yeah i got their demo it's awesome and we talk about shit all different groups then he said hey we're playing cbgb's and i went up and watched him you know and then the next i got a flyer from that show for the next Sunday was uh, Agnostic Front returning home from the Victim and Pain tour. And it was like the big New York homecoming. And I was like, I love that record, Victim and Pain. And at this time, I had super long hair. I had a denim vest that I had painted Motorhead and Venom on the back, you know. So me, Pete, Armand, and a bunch of our other friends, we all went down to the AF show. And it was that, that just changed our lives. Someone else told me a very similar story where they were very much into metal and they had the leather jacket and the long hair. His name is Al Nolan. I don't know if you know who Al Nolan is. No. He was in a band called Almighty Trigger Happy. He was a singer for that band. Very popular in Toronto and Canada area. Did they, were they just called Trigger Happy at one point? They point? were. Yes, yeah, they were. we did shows. We did tours with them. They awesome. were Awesome. Yeah, I interviewed him and he said the same thing. He was like, he was big into like Metallica. He saw Metallica in like 85. He was like leather jacket, long hair. And then he went, I'm pretty sure he went to a crossover show, uh, Corrosion and Conformity show. And that's when he like got into hardcore and punk. And he was like, wow. I got to cut, I got to get the denim. I got to cut my hair. <laughs> and it just <laughs> No wonder I like that guy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. I mean, those shows were amazing back then. And the, the thing that sold me on it, I tell the story all the time is, when uh, we were standing in the crowd, this guy came up to me. And I think all of New York City shaved their head for AF's homecoming, except us. So we're all there with our long hair and motorhead stuff. And this guy comes up and goes, hey, you, so you, you like Agnostic Front? And I go, yeah, I love Victim and Pain. I got it like a month ago and I haven't stopped listening to it. He's oh, cool. And he goes up on stage. It's Vinny Stigma, the guitar player. <laughs> and right there, I just like, that was the guitar player. This didn't happen when I went to see Black Sabbath at, you know, Madison Square Garden. Run into Tony Ioni on the bathroom line. 
So, you know, just sold me the next, we went every fucking Sunday from then. It's on. always those moments, right? When you realize that like the bands on stage, they could be cool people that just walk through the crowd and say hello and just hang out with people. And being like, quote unquote, a rock star isn't like this big, huge thing where you have to hide in the green room and, yeah. and you're too good for people. I know that you guys are not that. You guys are obviously like the type of guys that would just go and hang out with your fans. Obviously. Yeah, we do as much as you can. I mean, you get different moods, you know, if we've been on tour for three weeks, sometimes, you know, you don't want to, other times you're like, God, I got to get away from these idiots. I'm going to go talk to the friends. You know, I'm going to go out and stand by the merch. I don't want to hear Craig complain about something or they don't want to hear me complain about something. You know, Craig was in Gnostic Front in like the early nineties. And then he joined you guys, but you guys were already established at that point. Yeah. Craig, well, Craig, I think he was in, I forget when in the late eighties, he toured a lot with AF and then end of 92, beginning of 93, AF would decided to call it quits. Roger had had enough, you know, they were killing themselves touring and touring. Richie, our bass player wanted to leave. So we asked Craig to join. It was just a natural fit. We all grew up together. And it was funny. He did the last AF show, flew home, had three days at home and got in a van with us and did our first big US tour in 93 with us. Biohazard. And for half of it was sheer terror opening up and Fear Factory opened up the other half. Wow. Yeah, that's a great tour. That's a great tour lineup. It's crazy. It's very cool. You can be on Fat Wreck and you can, you know, you can tour with Rancid or, you know, you can play shows with No Doubt and all these like other punk bands that you play with. But then the first time I saw you guys was with Slayer. Yeah. Like I went to see Slayer and uh, like Diablo's tour in 99 and you guys were opening. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Who's that really skinny guy on stage (laughs) screaming and jumping around? Like this this is awesome. It's cool that you guys can go from playing with metal bands and touring with metal bands and then punk bands too. Yeah. I mean, that's just something that going to the early matinees, there would be, you know, social unrest 2000. And then there would be Beefeater, which was like mostly a, a funk band from DC playing, you know, and then, you had all these weird bands playing. It wasn't just because back then, you know, hardcore matinees or hardcore was just playing your heart out. And you had all these different styles. They all had an edge to them. But I mean, that's like, so whenever we were asked, it's funny. We, you know, we did one year where we did a tour with Rancid and then jumped right onto a tour with Helmet right after that. I think that was in 94, 95. You know? Lars is on a podcast by Damien from Fucked Up. He's on two podcasts, but it, they're like three hours long. And he's just tell us, <laughs> tells his whole life story. And at one point, Lars talks about the first time he met you guys and how scared he was. I remember. He was, yeah. <laughs> he mentioned that he was backstage and he had like his blow dryer and all of his like <laughs> hair stuff. He was going to spike his hair up. Yeah. yeah. And he was terrified to do it in front of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He sat there pretending to write his set list over <laughs> Because it was a big community backstage at City Gardens in New Jersey. And uh, we didn't care. You know, we were just, we had just gotten home from Europe and it was amazing. It was a, a great time. And that was funny because I remember our booking agent, uh, Stormy Shepard from Leaf Home Booking, she does Rancid. She goes, Yeah, they're playing the East Coast. Can they open for you guys? And they opened the show. It was rancid into another and sick of it all and it was amazing luckily for us it was such a great show it was our homecoming show from europe and turn and seeing all the guys from rancid standing on the stage when we opened up and the place just you know back then the place just exploded it was like they really loved it and then they invited us to open for them on the west coast and we did like you know, LA and whatever else and and Vegas opening up for them. It was great. So did you know about Rancid before your booking agent mentioned them? Yeah, I had to remember it was just Rancid or Let Go was out at the same time. I think Rancid was the first one. Let Go was the second one. 
I don't know if they were both out or one of them was out. Uh, but I remember I had let go and I loved it. Yeah. Great. Those are, all those early albums, so good. That's cool, yeah. And then he also mentioned another story. I don't even know how to explain it. Something about a guy shitting from like 10 feet away. <laughs> and a, whatever, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> go, listen, go listen to that podcast, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I know that one, yeah. Before we get off the topic of CPGB, did you ever see uh, Bad Brains there? I never saw the glorious shows of the early days. I only got to see, uh, there was a couple where they, not all the members showed up and they would play. And then I saw the farewell of CBGBs and I think it was 2006. I went to the last night of the Bad Brains there. It was good. I remember Avail opened up and they were good. And the Bad Brains, you know, they had such a mixed set. It was like, oh, it's great. And then all of a sudden it got really weird. And, you know, HR wasn't into it. I mean, after reading the book and seeing the documentary, you understand why now. Yeah. But the crowd was amazing. It was, <laughs> I was standing there and this guy comes, uh, a friend of mine, he goes, hey, he owns a bar. And he goes, hey, I want you to meet somebody. And he turns around, this is Elijah Woods. And he introduces me to the Elijah Woods. I'm like, <laughs> fucking Hobbit over here. This is awesome. Frodo? Yeah. <laughs> so then I'm watching the show. And he had his girlfriend at the time, or a date, who was a, a model who was taller than both of us. You know, <laughs> I was way taller than him, but his date was. So we were standing there watching the Bad Brains together. And I was with my wife. And Rick Ocasek from the Cars who produced the Bad Brains was sitting, we were standing by the pool tables in the back, then there's chairs, and Rick Ocasek was sitting on the seat, and then he sat up on the back of the chair, like right in front of my wife, and she yells, I didn't come here to see the back of the car's head, and he jumps <laughs> on the chair, he jumped down all nervous, I was like, don't be mean to the guy, and Elijah Wood's giggling, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is funny. Rick is, uh, yeah, he did the Weezer albums, he like yeah, he with cards. He I, I always respect that. He loved all different types, you know, of music. We did get to tour with the Bad Brains in 89, and it was like a dream come true. That was another pivotal moment in your life where I had a really good steady job, but I got as high as I could in it. And then I was like, wow, they want us to go out, but it's only for two weeks. So I asked my bosses for the time off. And they said, you got to ask the big boss. And he was like, well, you got your decision. You want a job or do you want to play in a band? I went, all right, thanks. I walked out of the office. I just kept going and went home. <laughs> You're just like, bam, I want to rock. I wish D. Snyder came in and punched him. That would, be that would have been, that was what, 89? Yep. Was that the moment when you realized you want to do the band full time and like this can actually work with the bad brains are calling you? Yeah, to do it well, I mean, that's the thing. It was because it was the bad brains and you fall in love with playing, you know, especially that young, you have no real responsibilities. You know, as long as my rent was paid, I paid my rent before I went on tour or, you know, when I'd come home, I'd pay all of it. But then we weren't making a lot of money. So, but it, you know, it was like you go on tour and you go right back and find another job. Yeah. You're not, so, you're not doing it for money, right? You're doing it because you love, you yeah. love to play at some point, obviously you have to do it for money because you know, you have a wife and a family now and you need a house exactly, and you need yeah. security. But you know, when you're a teenager in your twenties, you just want to travel the world. Yeah. You can tell when young kids are writing or younger people are writing to you through the band social medias and they're like, Hey, we have this benefit. It'd be like a six hour drive for you guys. Uh, we can't pay you, but we can feed you and put you up at night. And I don't want to be mean. I'm just like, I'm really sorry. We just can't do it because to get us together now, it's like, you know, Pete lives in Florida. Craig still lives in Queens. Armand lives upstate New York. I live in Jersey to get all of us together. That's like 1500 bucks right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You need a crew, at least a couple of guys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. People don't understand that. It's just that they're, they're that young and they're that idealistic, you know. I didn't know uh, Pete moved to Florida. 
Yeah, he moved, God, no, 10 years ago, maybe. He just loves it down there. He, you know, he gets out of his house. <laughs> he always tells me, he goes, when I go home from tour, I don't wear shoes or a shirt until I go back on tour again. Well, you barely wear shirts on stage anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. You probably haven't seen them in a while, I guess. Have you guys been doing anything? At the start of the pandemic, we did a remotely, we recorded songs together and we put them out videos. There's like five or six of them. And then uh, just different family things. My mother was battling cancer for a while. And then like a month ago, she passed away. So we were all the whole family. We were all there. Sorry about that. It's just life. Uh, she was suffering for the last year. So it's it's much better that she passed away. You know, the whole family was in the room with her. I just got a story from a friend of mine. Her dad had uh, COVID and he was really old. She couldn't even get in to see him. They were in the hospital, which was weird to me, but they were outside the room. They weren't allowed in the room with him. And I'm like, he's right there. You know, I would go in. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I would just go in. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. Speaking of New York and Florida, it's like completely different. Like New York, you had a lot of cases and spiked and everyone was kind of locked in. And Florida is just like on another planet. Yeah. It's just like COVID, whatever. <laughs> That's what my brother always says. He goes, it's so weird. And I always get messages. People are like, we had a tour planned with Agnostic Front. We had to keep pushing it, pushing it back, pushing it back. And then we get messages from Texas and Florida. Come to us. You know, we're wide open. I'm like, that's great. But I'm not going to drive all the way to Florida for a couple of shows. Yeah. You have three brothers, right? Yeah. Pete's the youngest. And then I'm, then it's me. And then we have two older brothers. We're all about a year apart. Italian, American? French, Italian. And my dad's first generation American. His heritage is Hungarian. He used to threaten us with gypsy curses and evil eyes. <laughs> and did it work? No. <laughs> we were little. They were like, behave yourself or grandma to give you the evil eye. And we we're like, well, I don't know what that is. <laughs> when you guys first were starting to play this like aggressive, hardcore music, were they like, what the hell is this? <laughs> well, I'm, I remember my dad, he saw a video of an agnostic front show. I showed him a video of it on VHS, of course. And uh, he goes, what is this, a gang fight set to music? Which made me like crazy. You know, they don't really understand. I guess it's not their cup of tea, but they they were very supportive. You know, it was something we were doing, and they saw that we were really into it. We would bust our ass to get things done. You know, at the beginning, I think I read that you were the bass player. You sang as you and Pete and another drummer. Yeah, like the very very beginning. Yeah, I was horrible, man. (laughs) Do you play any instruments now? No, I still mess around trying to write stuff, but it's just, it's easier for me to call up Pete and be like, what if we went, yeah, that works. Is there a main writer in the band or do you guys all kind of collaborate? Musically, it's split between Armand and Pete. Pete writes the majority of the songs. Armand writes the other half of the songs. And uh, lately, the last two albums, Craig has come in with some really, Craig's always had at least one song since he joined the band on every album, I think. Yeah, after Scratch the Surface, he had one full song on every album. But the last two albums, he's really committed. I think the songs he's bringing in are way better quality. And uh, the last album, he even wrote 90% of the lyrics. I would just like finish a little bit of it. Or in some cases, he wrote the whole thing. Do you write lyrics? Yeah, all, Most of the time? a lot. Yeah. yeah. Mostly it was me. And then it was me and Armand. And now when Armand writes his songs, he likes to write his own lyrics to them. So I'm like, that's great. I think yeah. he's a great lyric writer. For some vocalists, it's hard to get behind the song if you don't like the lyrics or you're not feeling the lyrics. Exactly, yeah. We were four different guys with sometimes different opinions, but it's never like he writes something that's totally against what I believe in, you know? And At least not yet. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but, yeah, I've never had any problem with anything he's written. 
Yeah, it definitely works for some bands. Like you mentioned Black Sabbath. I know yeah. you're a huge Black Sabbath fan. And it definitely comes out in the writing. There's certain songs where you'll do that Aussie kind of thing that he does where he sings the lyrics to the melody of the guitar. Yeah. And you definitely do that. And it's awesome. So like you could definitely hear the Black Sabbath influences in you guys and definitely Motorhead. Thank you. That's me. Online can write more musical. I write to the melody of the guitar. As hard as I try not to, I fall into it all the time. I'm like, that's ah, too good. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> Is there a time in which Sick of It All is going to be like, okay, we don't want to do this anymore. We're, we're getting to an age where it just does, doesn't feel right. Because there's certain bands, like Ramones. Ramones, at a certain point, they're like, we're not playing the songs as fast as we did. Let's just call it a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To bring up Motorhead again, like they just released one of the last live shows that he did, and it was live in Berlin. And I, I can't listen to it 
not because musically, musically he's fine, but his voice, he sounds fucking old. And it makes yeah. me sad because I know how much you're sitting there going like, wow, he was suffering. I understand. Yeah, he wanted to play till the end and he did. But I can't listen to him going, he says, yeah. all old man like. For us, we always say when it stops being fun or if we can't do it as well as we do, we're not like the Grateful Dead. We just don't stand on stage and sit around for two hours. We go. People always say like, oh, you guys play too short. We're like, you move like that for an hour and a half and see how yeah. every night. I distinctly remember thinking this. The last time I saw you guys live was you guys opened for Suicidal in Toronto at yeah, the Phoenix. Yeah. And it was an awesome show. It was fantastic. And you guys were full of energy. At that point, I'm like 38 and I'm like watching you guys bounce. I'm like, how the hell do they do it? You have to be so sore in the morning. Like I play with my <laughs> band the next day I'm sore. And like Pete, he goes nuts. Like oh, he yeah, goes well, nuts, right? So I'm just like, oh man, you guys are still going 100% all the time. So. Thank you, thank you. But yeah, Pete, he, he'll do that and then wake up the next day and go to the gym almost every day on tour. Me and Craig are the ones who are like, oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, even Armand, he's, he's always like sitting in the back, busting his ass because he's a guitar player, Armand. That's what he knows. He took up the drums just to play for our friends when we were teenagers. Our friend had a band called Straight Ahead and the drummer was a singer but he didn't want to do that anymore. And Armand goes, I'll drum. He never drummed before in his life. He learned it in that band. And he just hits super hard. And it's funny, we'll go see somebody like uh, Rise Against. And you'll, if you watch the drummer, he sounds like, oh man, this guy's killing it. You look at him, he's all laid back. Just, just yeah, like, his drum style is so weird. He, yeah, <laughs> it's like very soft. And his snare is like, yeah, it's, it's the way it's pointed. It's, but it's yeah. weird to me that it, it sounds like he's kicking the shit yeah. out of it. I feel like he definitely learned how to play drums from recording albums with Bill Stevenson a lot. Like he definitely has that same vibe as Descendants. Yeah. And it's funny because when we'd go on tour, I remember uh, uh, Igor from Sepultura and all these other drummers would, whenever we play and like they're around or they're in town, they would come and stand behind Armand and be like, God, he's a fucking machine. And Armand would just be like, why are all these good drummers looking at me? I'm just saying <laughs> shit, you know? You did a pretty big, like, arena. Was it an arena tour with Sepultura? Like, back in, like, like... For us, it looked like arenas. Yeah, they were, like, small, uh, I don't know, between... I remember in the Midwest, especially, playing, like, these indoor hockey rinks, you know? And it was, like, packed, sold out. And we were just like, holy shit. Yeah, and that was, what, like, 91, 92? 90 and 91, I can't remember, yeah. yeah. So, like, the I think it's Arise or Beneath the... Yeah, it was Arise. Yeah. Arise came out. What was it? Was it beneath? I I, it was one of the two, but they were like a massive force at that point. Yeah. And they were great. The shows were great. They were cool as shit. They were one of the, you know, not that we ever had any concept of like, oh, when we get big opening bands better listen to what we say. No, they were the guys who were, you could use any amount of PA you wanted. You could use all the lights if you, if you had somebody to do, like their lighting guy would come on to do our lights just for the hell of it. And he would do lights for us. He goes, wow. yeah, it lets me warm up for Sepultura. And we were just like, holy shit, that's great. Yeah. You know? And that doesn't happen often, right? Yeah. I, and uh, we, we were sharing a sound guy with Napalm Death, and he would come off the stage every night. He goes, man, Sepultura's sound guy came and told me, you know, to turn it down during you guys. And then what am I going to do during Napalm's set, you know? And then Igor happened to hear that. And the next night, he went out and told the guy, no, 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 they can do what they want. He said, you know, we brought these bands on because we fucking love what they do. That is definitely a thing, right? I've noticed that a lot. If you're an opening band, you're not going to be as loud 
as the headliner band and you're not yeah. going to have as many lights. Like I remember watching Cro-Mags, the John Joseph version yeah. of Cro-Mags. They played the Danforth. I forget who they opened for, but it was like they had like three red lights and it wasn't very loud. And I was just like, this is- yeah, that's that sucks. Was it Killswitch Engage show? I know Killswitch Engage took them out uh, recently, like before the pandemic. It might have been Hatebreed. Um, yeah, it might have been that Hatebreed tour with the... Oh, Brituary, uh, Hatebreed. Brituary, yeah. Yes, that was a great show. <laughs> but that, that's, again, it's also that, not to put them down, but I know the way they travel. They don't bring their own sound guy. They don't bring anybody that's just a band and they go old school, just jump in the van and go. We try to make sure we have our own sound person wherever we, especially when we're opening up for somebody else, unless we know the band and their sound guy and we can work a deal. Because like you said, I remember going to see, I don't remember what Metallica tour it was, but it was one of the last times I saw them besides we played a festival with them and a festival tour in Australia with them. But on this one tour in America, it was, I think Machine Head and all these great bands were opening up and they were like, wow, this is really good. And then Metallica came on, they were 20 times louder than anybody. And I was like, oh, it's that you can use these this many DB for your band, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Metallica's like that. They've had the same sound guy for 30 years. I forget his name, Big Something. Big Shirt. Well, Big Shirt was, I think, their monitor guy, and he ended up doing sound for a Slipknot. He worked for us for a couple of years, and he was a great guy. He came from the metal world. He worked for, I remember, he did a tour with us in Europe, and he loved us, and then he went to work for Saxon after that. (laughs) And then we had a tour in America with the helmet, and we said, we have to sound good. So we paid Big Shirt to come. And, you know, we had a great time and I'll never forget it. We played Roseland Ballroom in New York City. It was Helmet and Sick of It All. And I forget who the opener was, but everybody said they couldn't believe how great the sound was during Sick of It All set because the Roseland Ballroom was a hard place to get a good sound. And even the guys in Helmet were mad that their sound guy couldn't <laughs> I remember the guitar player when they were doing the uh, sound check because we play loud on stage. So he went up and he started doing the sound check and it, it sounded turned down. We got to turn it down. And he turns back and goes like, I seen Manowar play. They don't fucking turn down when they do. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I've seen Manowar live. Uh, I saw them with Immortal in like 2002 that they are a loud band. Dude, they are super loud. That's what another teenage band, a uh, band that would love this teenagers that I, if I can see him, I'll go see him. I saw them so many times, and my ear, I think they're the reason I'm deaf. I saw the Mortarhead Manowar tour, which is fucking the loudest shit I've ever seen. Yeah. And I hate to say it, but Manowar blew Motorhead off the stage that night. It was, it was Woo, big like, words. Yeah, I know. It's rough. You know? I saw them once in Toronto. They don't really come to Toronto very much. Like, it no, was like they, 2003 or something. Yeah, they stay in Europe now. I haven't seen them since the 90s because. Yeah. I'm always on tour and they barely play the States. They, they play Europe. They had their own festival for years. I forget, like five, six years over in like Czech Republic. And it was the Man of War Festival. And it'd be like you know, 20,000 people show up every year to see Man yeah. of War. Like, why would you play in, yeah, why would you play in Toronto for, at the Opera House for, you know, 800 people when you can play yeah. for 20,000 people and make a shit ton more money? Yeah, yeah. Speaking quickly about the sound guy, usually, if for anyone who's listening and doesn't understand, usually the sound guy is like the highest paid person on the tour. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It usually goes through everybody and then, it, you know, oh, then the band gets what's left. Yeah, yeah, it, pretty well, much. That's how I learned about spreadsheets when our, our road managers started using them. I'm like, wow, you get this much, this guy gets this much. We try to, 
do the combo jobs where you get the sound guy who is the road manager. You know, that's always because then we'll pay you a little more than we would normally pay a sound guy, but we're not going to have to pay two salaries and then two plane tickets or whatever. And less per diem for everyone. Exactly. Do you have like a social media guy now or a gal, whatever that comes out and takes photos and videos? We had some people and they would, uh, they were good. We had this one woman who taught me so much and then just, all right, and now you run it. So I do it, you know, it's not as good as she did, but you know, I do as best I can, you know, told me about the algorithms and this and that and when you should post for blah, blah, blah. So I try my best. Yeah. You do, you do a great job. I meant more so like you have a guy or a girl on tour that just documents everything. That's what's missing. Everyone there, you can see there's certain areas where that woman would come on tour or uh, we had a guy come on tour and they film everything and it's great. But when he's like, all right, I need stuff to post social media, you give it to your roadies. They film the same three songs <laughs> from the same angle every night. You're like, I know it's not your job, but can you please just like one night film a different song from a different part of the stage? Yeah. But the suicidal show, I did take photos of you because I'm a photographer. So I'll send you some photos. They're all right photos. They're not bad. But, you know, in the future, if you're going on tour and you have that extra little dough and you, hey, call up <laughs> Michael and I'll, I'll come with you guys. I hope we can do that. There's a friend of ours, Sylvie Maddie. You can find her on social media, you know, all of them. And uh, Sylvie Maddie Photography. And I always want to take her on tour because I always tell her, I go, you make us look like we're cool. <laughs> they'll shoot a million photos. And while you're playing, you know, she's on this side of the stage. She's behind you. Then all of a sudden, she's on top of the crowd. You know, next thing you know, she's in the balcony. She just doesn't, she busts her ass. And she does video and photos. And That's and then, what you need. The whole night she's sitting there, you know, after the show, we're all on the bus hanging out and she's sitting there editing. And you're like, wow, why do, can we pay this woman to come with us? That's how you know she loves what she does. Yeah. She's doing yeah. it instead of partying. Exactly. Or whatever you guys do on the bus. <laughs> What's the difference between like when you're on a bus touring in like the early 90s to now? I don't know, man. I mean, it was always, we don't use buses in America anymore <laughs> because it's too expensive. You, know? you guys just fly? No, we van it, man. You van it, okay. Got our own van. It's, you know, kind of like, not even a step, I wouldn't say a step back. It's just a practical thing to do is get our own van and uh, they pay for them. We had a, a vehicle that was converted. We had one of those airport shuttles, you know, those big shuttles, yeah. not big, but like a shuttle bus. And we converted it to some people could sleep while we drive and blah, blah, blah. But it kept breaking down. I, we, as soon as it pulled up, I, I think I cursed it. It pulled up and I go, Wow. This thing's a real shit box, huh? And that name stuck. <laughs> oh. so. Yeah, that'll do it. It does make sense. I, I see what you're saying. It does make sense. Because like you could pay upwards of like thousands and thousands of dollars for a bus for a tour, right? Oh. To rent. But it's not just that. You pay for it. You rent the bus for the tour for X amount. Then it's gas on top of that. Then you got to pay the driver's fee and per diem. And then get the driver a hotel every night in America. In Europe, it's different. You pay for the bus, the fuel, but the driver sleeps in the bus. He has his own space. He has his own. Sometimes they have their own little cabin in the front or the really weird ones. There's a the stair, the side door to the bus. There's a little hole and the bus driver crawls in there. Yeah, he crawls in the hole. Yeah, oh, that shit's weird, man. You see him or her for five days and then uh, like the sixth day you wake up and it's a different driver. You're like, what the hell? Because they have, they have that day off. 
Yeah. And I could just imagine doing something like Warp Tour. You have the bus on the whole time and you have the air condition just cranked. Oh, yeah. Especially. So just to imagine how much that would cost. Gas. Yeah. Um, I mean, we did that. That uh, They have a new thing, the bandwagons. Some guy, what he did was he took box trucks and made them into like a, a almost like an RV. But he didn't put hydraulics in it. So that way anybody could drive it. It's like renting a, like renting a truck at a U-Haul or something. But... The bad part about that is it doesn't have hydraulics. So you hit yeah. bumps when you're driving. <laughs> you're like, oh, this is great. And, but I mean, I liked it. That last warp Tour, and we did it in 2017, it worked fine. The best part is it had its own shower. So we just had to fill up the water tank every other day. And we could come right off the hot, sweaty stage and shower. And you were done, you know. And those are the rock star things you don't think about when you want to be a rock star, folks. You yeah. have to fill up the water tank to take exactly. a shower. the split are you a john joseph fan or a chromex fan or if you don't want to say i understand the chromex to me were all of them it took a certain insanity to make that energy i mean now it's funny like if you go through social media people they talk shit or they oh, the chromex why is there big worship that's because and i hate to say it i'm not being the old guy they were phenomenal just those chords just it struck something in everybody you know it, it just it was so primal but uh i mean Either one. Now, I've seen the John Joseph version because Craig plays in it. To him, it's just a side thing. It's like, yeah, I'll go for a couple of shows, whatever. And they were so good. And I've seen the Harley version. I haven't seen it lately, but, you know, he still writes great music. And when I saw him, he was good. We played festivals together years and years ago. It's good, you know, but to me, it would be great if they could get along, but there's no way they're going to do that. It's probably too far past that. Speaking of Craig, I keep bringing him up, but he did this album called Creep Division in like 2000. (laughs) And I got to tell you, I fucking love that album. It is so good. I think it's like him and Russ Rankin. (laughs) Yeah, it's him, Russ, and uh, and, uh, what's his name? Chuck from Good Riddance. You know how that came about? Going to Australia with Good Riddance. We were taking Good Riddance with us. We were touring together. And at certain shows, we were like, oh my God, there's like five shows. There's no opening band. And this is on the airplane flying to Australia. So you got 14 <laughs> hours. And those three guys go, we'll make a band. And then Russ goes, I'll be in the band and I'll play. I think he plays bass or I forget. He what plays he bass, yeah. He plays bass. And he goes, but only if we yell skinhead in every song. <laughs> I don't know why. But so they made like five songs on the plane and it was great. 
but it just snowballed from there. You put the CD in and the, the, hey, everybody, look, there's a shit cloud coming. Run for your lives. It's just like I, I've listened to that song so many times. And I just start laughing at the beginning. And it's just it's like every song is like a minute. It's great. Yeah, it was great. It was good. Hardcore, man. It's funny. He, they actually, we did uh, two years ago. The last time we toured Europe, we were doing a run of Spain and Good Riddance happened to be there at the same time. So we joined together. And then they, of course, at the last show, at a club next to the club we played, they had a Creep Division special show. The reunion and, show. Yeah, people loved it. 20 years later. We'll keep on talking here about uh, the difference in bands, Black Flag or Flag. Ooh. See, that's another one. I've only, we got to play with Flag in Canada at, at uh, what the hell is that festival? Rockfest. Yeah. It was a good lineup. It was like Biohazard, Pennywise, Sick of It All, flag and i was just like flag killed it you know i have nothing against black flag i've, I've never seen them like that you know but it is what it is seem like they're doing it just and having a good time but the, what i read about black flag it's like doesn't seem like a fun trip to go you know to be in that band what's going on with the band you have 12 albums when are we getting the 13th well pete sent me like sent all of us i think he's got 18 songs already that he sent out wicked can you play them for us all now there's no vocals, it's just, you know. <laughs> I so like you have, them. you have an album, basically. Well, yeah, now, now it's up to me and Armand to sit down and bang out the lyrics. And the problem is him living in Florida sucks because I'd rather have all four of us in a room and say, like, all right, this song is great. Because when we do stuff like that together, it'd be like, let's try this instead. And uh, Craig's really good at arranging. So, like, Take the Night Off, where it breaks down slow before the chorus on one part, but then in the second half, it just keeps it the same tempo that was craig who said no, no no let's not break it down again it's, that's too predictable let's just go and to me it works you know yeah he's, he does that a lot he's got he's good at arranging you know when we try different things so that's great yeah so, it's, I mean, it's that's why we all four have to be in the room though because even on you know like this it doesn't feel right maybe it'll work but it doesn't feel right it's definitely a struggle because of the pandemic and a lot of bands are struggling with that they don't know exactly how to go about writing the album but then there's yeah. other bands that are just kind of you know figuring it out and they're they're just but, doing it i mean since he moved down there we've been writing kind of like that where he sends us his ideas for songs and then everybody learns them or whatever and like i'll start writing to it but if i feel something needs to be changed we wait till we usually after like a month of sending stuff back and forth then we get together for two weeks or whatever and we hammer stuff out it's everyone in the same room just hammering it out you get the album done yeah way quicker sometimes like the songs are just like oh that's perfect the way it is and other times we have to try shit maybe it won't work but other times it does you know so but you have to be there is jerry gonna produce this album yeah, we hope so. Obviously, he loves us. We love him. He's always been a great engineer, and he worked well with Two. And Two was the one who suggested that Jerry produce the uh, 30th anniversary EP. Two said, and I'll just mix it. And then we went from there. I think uh, especially on Wake the Sleeping Dragon, Jerry killed it because he was like a good producer where he wasn't a dick. He was like, we're going to do pre-production for real. Not like you guys go to the studio, rehearsal studio, and put a you know a little handheld recorder in the middle of the floor and record a bunch of noise. So we went in with all the ideas, we recorded them. Then him and me sat for a month working on vocal lines. Like I'd go to his house in his studio in his house, which was his teenage bedroom. And I just, you know, we would try different shit and it was great. 
And I, I really can't wait to get lyrics down for this and then get Jerry involved. You know, I think Jerry and two have such a good working relationship. Also, they respect each other immensely and, and they compliment each other. Yeah. That's always great. When you have a team, you know, you can count on. Yeah. Is it going to be uh, fat Rex uh, release again or probably this is, would be our last album for century media. And Century okay. has changed so much since we joined. I mean, we still love the people that were there, but a lot of our champions, especially the owner, Robert, they're all leaving, you know? They got bought by Sony. And Sony, we asked if we could just be let out of our last album, but Sony looked at how we sell mostly in Europe, and they were like, well, you owe us one more album. You know? <laughs> they saw dollar signs. Yeah. I mean, it's like we do good record sales without them putting much into us because we go out and bust our ass on tour, you know? And, and luckily, we have a, a good reputation and a good booking agent in Europe where, yo, you know, Slipknot wanted, called for us personally to be on their Slipknot Fest in France. And we were like, that's all right. So we'd go do that. You know, I mean, I never think that it would be sick of it all ministry, Papa Roach and Rob Zombie on the same bill with Slipknot, you know? <laughs> that's what i'm saying like you guys can play with punk bands you can play with metal bands and papa roach the thing about papa roach is they've been hardcore fans for way back they took a snapcase on a full fucking tour man snapcase didn't even have like you know a major release it was just you know. yeah pretty sure a lot of people don't realize that before their big like breakout album with no, infest and all that stuff yeah they had like five albums before that that were more tense more like not really hardcore completely yeah. but more in I your mean, face music before it, they just happened to hit with that album at the yeah. right time because all that stuff was kind of happening it's like pod they, i mean they always sounded the same but it was a little more rough edged but they grew up in the hardcore scene they played joe's opening for snapcase you know before they were big I always say this now, you never know who's in your audience. Craig was telling me the other, uh, this is going back a few years, that one night he gets a call from a friend of his who works at, in some tattoo thing out in California. And uh, the guy goes, hey, I'm sitting at this party talking to the drummer of System of a Down. And I told my new Craig, he played in Sick of It All. And the guy, he got on the phone, he's like, oh, Craig, man, Sick of It All, we used to go see you guys all the time when you played L.A. And it's like, oh, fuck. You know, I don't know yeah. that, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, the guy from Disturbed came up to us at a festival. He watched our whole set and he said, I used to go see you at the Metro in Chicago. So it's really mm -hmm. nice that these people were like, you know. Yeah, he's a hardcore fan. David. It's, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. yeah, you never know. I don't know if you realize this. You've been in the game for like 30 plus years. <laughs> and, and You've influenced a lot of people with your music. I don't know if you know this or not. New York yeah. hardcore is a pretty big deal. You um, did a lot for a lot of people. I'm just, I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> You're very humble, I can tell. Do you consider yourself like a rock star or are you just a dude in a band? I wish I was a rock star in a sense in the 70s where they made shit tons of money. <laughs> but yeah. no, I don't think I'm rock. I play in a band and we never try to brag about it, but you know, sometimes you'll sit back and be like, yeah, we fucking did pretty good, you know? The funniest thing was the first time we played a huge festival in Europe. I was scared to death going on. And uh, it was 100,000 people. Wow. The Dynamo, this is back at the Dynamo Festival was the huge thing. I was so nervous. And then our roadie walks. He just set up all the shit. And he walks off the stage. And you see all those people out there? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. He goes, this is a long way from Queens. And we both just started laughing. And Pete started laughing. We were fine. You, know? you go out and you play the first song. You don't remember playing it because <laughs> exactly. the adrenaline is intense. And then you get into it. And you're like, okay, let's yeah. do this. 
Yeah. It was luckily, you know, like those days, you're, you're young. You don't think even about pacing yourself. You just go out. And even if you're starting to gas out, you go, no, I got to push harder. Now I'm like, all right, I got to calm down. Especially like you go to South America and it's amazing. As soon as the lights go down, even if it's just a punk show, you know, but it's like 2000 people show up for a punk show in, in Colombia. And then the lights go down, the whole place cheers like it's a rock show and you get goosebumps, you know, and then people chanting the band's name and you're like, and then you get out there and they just go wild. Yeah. And they sing every word and they, yes, they, they <laughs> sing every guitar riff. Is there anything you do or don't do on tour so that your voice doesn't get destroyed? I try to stay away from the only dairy I really eat is, is when I eat pizza. So I try <laughs> to stay away from pizza unless I have a day off the next day, then I'll have pizza that night, the night before. and. For some reason, the way I scream, uh, I know there's methods to screaming now, and I tried to learn them, but I'm not that smart, I guess. But I'm just like setting my ways. Coffee fucks my voice. I love coffee, but on tour, I don't touch it because it, it dries me out too much. It makes my vocals higher than they should be, no matter how much I, you know. Yeah, the caffeine, caffeine does that. It dries out your throat, and if you have a Coke or coffee of some sort, yeah, it will make you like a little sharp. Yeah. It's, it's very strange, yeah. But then again, I had friends who could smoke and drink whiskey and coffee in the morning and smoke another cigarette and get up and, and actually sing. You know? How did Dimebag Daryl get on stage every night after pounding a bottle of JD oh. and, and play better than he did on the album? How did he do that? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Just in the blood. I don't know. Did you ever meet him or play with Pantera at all? Oh, God. Um, I used to work for their management company. I worked in the mailroom. I worked in the mailroom, the management company, and it was also a marketing company called Concrete Marketing, Concrete Management. And I worked in the mailroom. When they did Cowboys from Hell, that's when they got picked up by Concrete Management. And the secretary, who was also a uh, partner in the company, she was sitting there talking to Phil and then we're talking all about New York hardcore. And she goes, New York hardcore? What do you know about it? And he starts, and she goes like, well, do you know that Lou Kohler works in our mailroom? They all came up to the mailroom just to say hello to me. And then we hung out a bunch around that time. And I got to see him every time they played New York. You know, it was cool. And every time I see Phil or any of those guys, whenever we would run into him on the road, it was great. Proof right there. People still send me pictures. Like somebody sent me a picture the other day. It was the original Pantera on their first tour of Russia or whatever. When, I guess when they went through that big festival standing in front of the Kremlin. They go, look, Dimebag's wearing a sick of it all long sleeve. I mean, yeah, I gave him that fucking shirt, you know? Rex Brown is wearing one in one of the videos, the same shirt, you know? Proof that you've done a lot for the ah. music scene. <laughs> so congratulations, Tom. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to me. You're an awesome, awesome, awesome dude, awesome band. Thanks. Good luck in the future. I hope the next album is as good as the last 12, if Thank not better. You. Thank you. Lucky 13, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's the title of the next album who knows who knows thank you very much Lou thanks man I'll see you later
that was take the night off by sick of it all. And uh, I'm encouraged everyone to take the night off. So, you know, it's Friday. Take the night off. Just, you know, relax. Sit on your couch, your easy chair. Crack open a pop. Take it easy. I want to give a big shout out to CRW one more time. Canadian Rock Wrestling. Thanks for uh, sponsoring this episode. Make sure you check those guys out. Thank you so much. And I want to give a big shout out to Steve Risen, who is the technical producer on this episode and all of the past episodes. He does all of his work out of Drive Studios in Toronto, Canada. Thank you, Steve Risen. And to everyone else, you know what I'm going to say next. You know I'm going to say it. You know I'm going to say it. See you next time.